I work for uh, the city of Naperville. I've been there, uh, it'll be uh, 11 years in, uh, in April, and, uh, or 12 years in April, and um, I'm a water operator there. So what that means is that I make sure that the uh, water is safe to drink on a daily basis, uh, that there's enough chlorine, that there's no bacteria in the water. Um, and uh, before that, I was a laborer. I, 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 I fixed, uh, I, I repaired all the sewer and water mains in the city of Naperville anytime we had, a, anytime we had an issue. During that time, I hurt my back really bad about four or five years ago. And during that, uh, I was off, off of work for uh, the most miserable six weeks of Becky's life uh, as, as I recovered from that. And uh, um, despite the fact I, I, uh, that I was doing physical therapy and chiropractic work and, and getting injections into my back, uh, I had to have surgery. Uh, during that, uh, during that February, just a few months later, uh, during that period of time, I had lost 30 pounds. I was quite a bit skinnier then, um, and it was uh, it was interesting. When I went into the surgery, I could barely walk into the surgery. Uh, my legs hurt extremely bad. Um, I was in pain all day long, and uh, when I walked out of the surgery, uh, I was virtually pain free, other than uh, slight pain just from uh, the minor surgery that I had. You see, this was the cure for, the, for uh, my debilitation. This was the cure for my pain and suffering. Uh, much the same way, as Pastor Phil shared last week, that we are an adulterous people, that we constantly seek after different directions rather than uh, going towards God. James this week is going to give us a cure for this type of thinking and this type of living, uh, which applies well to our lives. Um, our passage today is James seven or James four seven through twelve. If you would, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. James says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, uh, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against another brother. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for the message uh, that you've placed on my heart. I thank you for the opportunity that Pastor Phil has given me. Lord, I pray that as I've prepared and uh, as I preach this morning that uh, these would be your words from your heart, not mine. Lord, that I would speak boldly the words that you've uh, placed on my heart. 
I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first thing I want you guys to notice is this, this passage is full of aorist impar- imperatives. This means that these are commands that James has given us to do. Um, these aren't, this isn't something that we can simply say no to. Uh, if you underline in your Bible, this would be a good time. I'm, I'm going to give these to you, and we'll work our way through these as we go, but uh, underline these if you underline in your Bible. Under, underline the word submit, resist, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, Purify your hearts, be wretched, underline mourn, weep, underline humble yourselves before the Lord, and last, do not speak evil against another brother. So I want to draw these out this morning by uh, not looking at every single word, we, we will look at a few of them, but... I want to do this by doing a self-examination for yourselves, asking three questions. The first question is, will you capitulate yourself before God? You see, what James is saying here in verse 7 is that we need to submit, uh, submit to God. This word submit is not a word we like to hear in our world today, we don't. We, none of us really like to submit. Uh, this word "submit" in the Greek is "hupotasso." It literally means to put yourself or someone else under subjugation or to obey. We see this in the way that a wife submits to her husband, and even the way uh, Jesus submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. You see, but in both cases, each party is completely equal. A husband and a wife are equal in every way. Just the same, the Trinity is equal in every way. Now, Paul addresses this in his letter to the Philippians. He says in Philippians 2, 4 through 7, let each, each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Think about that for a second. Jesus being fully God and yet didn't count that to be something to be grasped. Understanding this first imperative is, is of the utmost importance to understanding the rest of the passage. If we don't understand that we are to submit to God, in these things. We will not be able to fulfill the rest of what James is calling us to. Submitting to God allows us, uh, allows us to do three things. First, to defy evil in our lives. Remember, we're not doing these things under our own will. We're not, um, we're not trying to Uh, just grin and bear it. We're not trying to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps in these moments when we're defying the evil in our lives. But James is writing to Christians. This means that we, uh, as he's writing to us, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. This means we don't fight these fights on our own. We have God on our side. 
when we fight these things, when we defy the evil in our lives. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Letting Satan or evil dwell in our lives makes uh, getting rid of these sins, getting rid of the evilness that we have in our lives, the, the sinfulness that wells up within us, so much harder to get rid of later. Another way that we can fight this is, is being in a community with one another. That's what church is all about, is being in community with each other. We do, we, we're able to fight this because uh, during the good times and the bad times of our lives, we can share those with the, our brothers and sisters that are here with you every Sunday. That's part of the blessing of church. Secondly, we need to disinfect our bodies. Um, look at verse 8. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. I find it interesting that he puts this directly after, um, after, after the command to resist the devil. That we're supposed to clean this idea of cleaning the outside of our bodies, cleaning our hands. James has not just given us a bunch of law of, in this book, but he's giving us practical steps to, uh, to go about doing these. What James is saying is that when we place ourselves under Christ's lordship, we can find victory in the sins that we have in all areas of life. James, writing to Christian, Christians, uh, uh, had this in mind, and we also must assume that these Christians have done something to warrant this response from James. Remember, James is writing to uh, a church, his church, and, and so he sees these uh, issues popping up in his church, and here in his letter, he keeps addressing these one after another. This is no different here. He sees, he sees the people in his church drifting and, and, and drawing near to other things, not to God. In the same way, we, we see that um, many times we as Christians, when we uh, turn from God, he seems so distant and doesn't, uh, seems, like, seems like he's not listening to our prayers. The fact is, is that, that we've never been able to turn to God on our own volition. God is never far away from you. God has always made the first move towards you. It's interesting that, that God always makes the first move, and yet when we, when we drift from God, we're so quick to point the finger and say, well, why isn't he listening? What we have to do is simply turn around and, and walk back into his loving arms. He's there waiting to, to hear from, from you. He wants a relationship with you. This is similar to the way, to the way my kids are. When, when, they, uh, when they disobey Becky and I and there's punishment for their actions, it can be real easy for them to have the feelings of, of their parents not loving them, which is the opposite. We punish and we, uh, we do this to correct the action. 
we always want them to come back to us. God, being a good, good father, wants to meet us where we are at in our lives, in the pain and the hardships that we go through on a daily and even a moment-by-moment basis. The sin that we fall to, uh, Jesus meets us at these places. When our hearts are moved because of the loving, loving submission that we have placed ourselves under, our outward action begins to look more like Jesus because of an inward heart change that is taking place. James has, has given us a practical metaphor here of cleansing your hands. He's talking about your outward actions. He wants you to change the outward action, the outward appearance, the way that you appear to your coworkers, the way that you appear to your friends. We can see this idea that James has hit on many times in this entire passage, uh, or in this entire book, um, of this dichotomy of faith and works and how those play off one another. What he is saying is that we can't simply be a Christian outwardly or inwardly. Both of these must take place at the same time. I've, I've heard a few times uh, working with youth group and, and others that, um, that my faith is a private faith. This is an oxymoron when it comes to Christianity because God has called us to live our faith in a public way. Not behind closed doors and not behind closed hearts. This is not just our Jesus to hold on to in our moment, but one that's supposed to be shared to the world. The third thing I want you to notice is that we're to decontaminate our souls. James says uh, in the rest of this verse, purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is a call, the words here that James is using is a call that would go out to uh, a priest that's working in the temple uh, to purify themselves as a ritual cleansing. He's talking to us even today because we're stained by the stain of original sin and the sins that are welling up within you, maybe even at this moment. Uh, these, uh, these sins and these, these uh, thoughts that well up within us uh, could be coming from Satan or could just be from those regular thoughts that, that come. Uh, James's call reaches to the depths of who we are. He's reaching down to where your heart is. We've noticed many times that, that James has reached back and, and, and is reaching back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's many correlations in, in this book between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. And the overarching message of what the Sermon on the Mount is is where's your heart? James is asking that here. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 7 and 8, we kind of get an idea of what our hearts are like here in the church. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you are like the whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
How, how easy is that for, to be applied to us in the church, that we can easily seem a hypocrite, like we have everything together, but inwardly we are full of dead people's bones, sinfulness, and all uh, lawlessness. We need to decontaminate from the inside out. I, as I said, I work for the city of Naperville, and now I'm a water operator, and many times we have to... Uh, we have to clean our ground storage tanks. Now, one of our ground storage tanks that we cleaned last year uh, is about 8 million gallons. So to give you just a kind of a picture of what that looks like, the tank is about 20 feet into the ground and sticks, sticks out about 20 feet above the ground and is about 300 feet across. So it's, it's a large tank. So the process that we have to go through for this is we hire a contractor that, that comes in, and the contractor will uh, clean the outside of the tank uh, paint the outside of the tank for us. Then we go on the inside and we clean the inside of the tank. We wash it down. There's, uh, there's elements in your water that over time will settle out and settle to the bottom of these tanks. And it just looks like dirt. Uh, but it's iron and, and manganese and, and other things that are more than safe to drink. But we have to clean out, we have to clean out the inside of this tank. And, and, and we add chlorine to the water, and we have aluminum ladders within the, within this uh, within these tanks, and the chlorine will stick to the to the aluminum. So we need to clean those off as well. And once we get all that clean um, and and shoveled out and bucketed out, uh, most people would think that 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 the reservoir is clean to put water back into. The EPA though has a different standard. You see, uh, we don't know what's on the hoses that we bring into into the tank, and we don't know what's on the bottom of our boots. And so we have to put uh, uh, very high doses of chlorine into, the, into these tanks to kill any bacteria that come in. You see the correlation here that, that the tank can't clean itself. Much the same way, you cannot clean, you cannot disinfect the inside of your body. This is only done through the work of Jesus on the cross. The second question I want to ask this morning is, do you confess your sin when you fail? Do you keep a short list with God? And James says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I think it's neat with a book of so many do's and don'ts and so much law James is bringing that back to where our heart is. He's making this incredibly personal at this moment. James, being the half-brother of Jesus, was far closer to Jesus than, than most people ever were. And that's, that may include some of the disciples. He spent, he lived with Jesus for around 30 years and... Um, and when, Jesus, when James, or, excuse me, when Jesus uh, pays the penalty for sins, a uh, short time after, James has a real encounter with a God-man, Jesus. One, and I'm speculating here, left James undone from the inside out to the point that James was sick over the sins that he had in his life, over the way that he thought about his brother, the way that he talked about his, brother, his half-brother. I like the way 
the New Living Translation puts this, uh, says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. How often do we just shrug our sins off? I, I, I just, I, I'm reading this and, and this just came to mind. How, how often do we shrug our sin off uh, as not that big a deal? Not that we're laughing about it, but that it's not that important to us. Does, does your sin make you sad or sick? The idea here is that our emotions have been moved to sickness. The sickness wells up within you uh, that you're mourning over your sin. The Greek word here is pentheo. Uh, John MacArthur has, has a really good note about this word pentheo. Of the nine terms used for, uh, for sorrow, the one here is, um, of the nine terms used for sorrow, the one here uh, is the strongest, the most severe. It represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief and was generally reserved for grieving over the death of a loved one. The word carries a deep inner agony which may or may not be expressed by outward weeping. So many times we as Christians ask for forgiveness with the expectant understanding that our sins are already forgiven past, present, and future. And yes, that's true. But are you mourning over those sins? Are you really thinking about the depth and the penalty that was paid for those sins? This grief is good. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. So are you grieving over the depth of your sin? I really think that if we were grieving over these sins, if we were grieving over, over the penalty that was paid, that we would not be stuck in the sinfulness that we find ourselves in. And I'm not saying that we're all stuck in sinful practices, but we're all sinners. We all sin on a daily basis. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. I don't think Jesus is talking about those that lose loved ones. I really think Jesus is talking about mourning over your sin. We see this in when a sinner comes to repentance, how they're comforted in those moments. It's interesting reading that verse doesn't it sound like James has heard this before? It seems like James has heard this message many times of mourning over your sin, grieving, weeping over your sin. It should drive us mad knowing that Jesus paid such a high a price for us that we still at times, moment by moment, uh, on a moment by moment basis, stomp on the very gift that was so graceful gracefully and graciously given to us. This gift is the power and the way that, that God loves us. You see, even though 
each of us fall short of God's holy standard, he still loves us. There's nothing that we can do in our sinfulness that could ever merit God's love. It doesn't matter if you're a worship leader or a preacher or you're a Sunday school teacher with all the little blessings downstairs. None of these things will ever merit God's love for you. The good news is, though, just in a few weeks we're celebrating Easter and the death of Jesus on the cross. And in that death, he paid the penalty for your sins and mine. And when he rose out of the grave on Sunday morning, he defeated Satan and sin. That's the good news of the gospel. David also found himself in a similar situation after uh, Pastor Phil talked about last week, after uh, his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and his murderous rage of Uriah. After David had been restored, he penned these words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Is this true of you? Can you say this about the way you feel about your sin? Can you look back at times in, in your life and say, that I have grieved over my sin in this way. I could feel God's hand was heavy upon me as though my bones were being wasted away. I can think back in my life and remember times when this was very true of me. When this was true of the way I felt about my sin. And I'm not saying that, that I'm perfect at this or that this is a daily occurrence for me. Maybe that's a moment of conviction on my heart, but this should be true of all of us, that we are mourning over our sin. Do you live a life of stubbornness or self-effacement? Those who have grown up in the church, uh, we can find it easy to play and find our roles in this production that we call church on a weekly basis. We can find our niche uh, in teaching Sunday school or leading worship, we can hand out bulletins and give out handshakes. When, though, we humble ourselves before the Lord, our submission is do done with self-effacement. What I mean by this is that I then do not look at how good I am or how good I could be, but I look at myself the same way God does without Jesus. I'm a sinner who deserves all of God's wrath poured out on me on a daily basis. I don't deserve rest or reconciliation, but I deserve purgatory and perdition. When I start to justify myself and my actions, I give up the humbleness 
that I, that I really need to be living a life of submission and sickness over my sin. The good news is, though, that when we do live lives of humbleness, James says, he, God, will exalt you. This word, hoop, this word exalt is, is the Greek word hoopso. It's lifting one up to a place of honor, to fame, power, or position. We can see this in the life of Jesus many times in the gospel. I'm just going to give you a couple of references to write down here. Uh, James 3.14, or sorry, not James, John 3.14 and 8.28. Also Luke 1.52 and 10.15. There's many other verses that, uh, that speak of Jesus being exalted above those around him. But these kind of give a, a good idea of what, what this word hoopso is talking about. This is very countercultural that, that we uh, find in our, in our culture today. If we want a job promotion, we need to go out and get it. We don't, we don't just work hard and hope that the boss sees us, that he notices our work. But we step on everybody that is in our way to get that position. We can see this in, in kids' sports as well, in school and in politics. Uh, one commentator wrote this about being exalted. One can, either, uh, one can either exalt oneself or allow God to exalt him, but only the latter man will be justified or declared righteous. In other words, Jesus is teaching, uh, Jesus is teaching that the humble man who acknowledges his lack of personal righteousness and looks to God for righteousness will be exalted, which in this context indicates that he will be declared righteous. Justification or being declared righteous depends on God's grace, not on human works or merit. On the other hand, those who exalt themselves and count on their own righteousness will be humbled by God. Let me read that again. On the other hand, those who exalt themselves or count on their own righteousness will be humbled by God. I heard a story of a man uh, that owned a small business uh, not too long ago, and, and he had an employee that was doing, doing a really good job. He was given more and more responsibility, and he kept excelling at what he was doing. And... Uh, and the employee knew that he was excelling as well. The employee outlined uh, then for, the, for his boss the way that uh, he had been excelling in his job and, and took to his boss exactly what he thought he deserved for a raise. His boss agreed with all that all the, the employee said and gave this employee more responsibility overseeing crews and, and giving him the pay raise that he wanted. The problem is, is that the employee, though, missed out on two things. One, he didn't know that his boss, excuse me, was going to be uh, having the same conversation with him. He didn't know that his boss had noticed all of these things. And what that meant is his boss was going to give him more responsibility than what he had asked for and also a, a higher pay raise. 
the biggest thing that he missed out on, though, was being exalted among his peers by his boss because he went to his boss instead of allowing his boss come to him. If he was humble, if he was more humble in this, that's what would have taken place. The third question for self-examination this morning that I want to ask you is, will you criticize or give courtesy? Let's uh, read verses 11 and 12 again. As James says, Do not speak evil against another brother. The one who speaks against a brother or judges uh, his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? First, we've got to remember that these, this letter, again, was written to a specific people at a specific time. He was writing again to his church in Jerusalem, and, and now they've been scattered. But he had seen, again, that this was taking place within his church. We can't simply read verses 11 and 12 on their own. Uh, for to do so, we would be taking this far out of context. But if we simply go back to verse 1, we can see what James is talking about. James says that, it's, that, is, the, that it is the passions that are at war with it in, in them. These lead to murder. We covet, so we fight. James sees that his church was judging each other in these things. And it at some level, that's rightfully so. When we judge, though, James is saying, we need to make sure that we're doing verses 11, or I'm sorry, 7 through 10 first. When we submit to God, when we humble ourselves, when we look at our own sin the way God does, we will be far gracious to those that we're judging in the church. And this judgment isn't an outward judgment. We're not judging uh, somebody's appearance. What we're judging is their action. If a brother is sinning or a sister is sinning, we need to come around them in loving kindness and try to correct that action. When we start to do this, and when we look at other sin the same way we look at our own, if we're doing 7 through 10, we will begin to see other sins the same way we see our own, and that is that they stink the same in the nostrils of God. We'll be, when we do this, though, we'll, be able to, we'll begin to ask a series of questions. First, who am I to judge? You can write these down or not. Uh, who am I to judge? The answer to that is you're a Christian. And as a Christian, we are called to judge the actions of others. We're judging the sinfulness that's in the world, not the people themselves. What sin do I have in my life is the second question. The answer is, uh, how are you to judge someone with what they're struggling through if you're struggling through sin at the same time? 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is sticking out of your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log sticking out of yours? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Third question is, is sin, is the sin, uh, is this sin condemned in Scripture, or is this just personal preference? How often do we commingle those two of sinfulness and personal preference? We see this in the way Christians act in church of the, the worship music is too loud, or it's not the music that I like. We judge people around us for what they wear. They're wearing cargo shorts and T-shirts and not dress shirts and ties or dresses. Number four, what is my emotional reaction to this? Our emotions can be a very negative thing. It can drive our actions in a very negative way. That being said, our emotions can also be a very good thing for the decisions that we make. And this, but this shouldn't be our only barometer when we're judging others. Number five, is this something that I should even be doing? Someone may come and confess sin to you, or you may bring something against a brother or sister But, it, but during those times, it's not always appropriate for you to be the one doing that. We see this in a male-female relationship. Our Daily Bread illustrated the, this idea of judging others by telling a, a, a story about a bishop who was taking a transatlantic trans um, voyage on a ship. And he boarded the ship, and, and when he got on the ship, he took his bags to his room, and, uh, and met his roommate for the, for the voyage. And after, after doing that, he took his uh, valuables to, a, um, uh, to the ship's safe, the person that guarded the, sh- the ship's safe, and, uh, and asked them if, if they would hold on to his valuables for him. He said, you know, I, I just don't know if I trust the person that, I was, uh, that was assigned to my room. The person that's guarding the safe remarked, uh, it's all right, Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of these for you. The other man has already been up here for the very same reason. So what's the point of this? What's the point of judging others? First, we need to condemn sin. We are not playing God in these moments. We are not the ones condemning these people. We're not judging the people themselves as individuals, but what all we're judging is the sin they have or that they're showing in their life. When we look back to this passage in Matthew 7, we can clearly see that James 
or that Jesus is not telling these people to not judge. He's saying when you do judge, you will be judged by the very same strictness. This is why in this passage it's so important that we go back to verses 7 through 10 because then our hearts will be in a different place. Instead of being condemning, we will be looking at our own sin differently. We will have far more grace towards these people. Secondly, we're to show courtesy to the sinner. James, though, isn't writing to, to us saying, talking about non-Christians. These are brothers and sisters in the church that are Christians. So when we are judging them, we need to keep that in mind. Many, many times we need to be a little, more, a little harder on them because they do know the difference of what's right and wrong. We must remember that in this time of confession or if we're bringing an issue up to a brother or sister, that this is much like a blister that the outside skin has been ripped off of. Now there's skin on the inside, but that skin is raw and sensitive. We must go back to verse 6 in this very same passage. James says that God gives more grace. We need to be like God in these moments. We need to give more and more grace to these people. We need to come alongside someone that's struggling through sin to restore them back into the fold, to a place of reconciliation both with God and with others they may have hurt. And God gets much glory from this. John 8, 2 through 7, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is talking here. And it says, All the people came to him, Jesus, and he sat down and taught, taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees um, brought a woman uh, who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, command us to stone this, such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone. How much are we like the men in this passage that want to cast these stones at people? You notice Jesus didn't say that these men were wrong. The law of Moses is perfect. Their heart behind what they're saying is wrong. You also notice that Jesus didn't condemn the sin in this woman's life. Later, he goes on in just a couple of verses and tells the woman, sin no more. Here, Jesus is giving more grace. What a great example that he shows 
that the way we should be showing love and kindness towards others. So we need to remember that in this verse, in these verses, that all of this hinges on that one word, submit. When we don't submit to God in our hearts, when we're not living lives of submission, the rest of this falls apart. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much again for this time this morning. Lord, I pray that, as James says earlier, that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. That we would live these lives of submission. That that you're calling us to. Lord, that you would be glorified not um, simply by our outward appearance, but by where our hearts are. Lord, I pray that we would take this message from this place and not just forget what you've taught us here this morning. Lord, but when we interact and engage with the world, that we would do so with loving hearts and kindness. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.